Hi, I'm Lou Eisen, boxing writer, author, podcaster, historian, all-around schmuck, and I, I am, I, I'm going to turn my phone off there. Today, we have a special guest on Ring Talk. We have Arnie K. Lang. I love Arnie K. Lang. Anytime you speak to any boxer or any, excuse me, any author in the world of boxing and you're writing a book, they say the same thing. If you want to know how to write a book, read Arnie Lang because he knows how to write a book. People put out 1,200 page books, 800 page books. Arnie puts out these magnificent books and they're absolutely perfect. There's not a wasted comma or letter. He's the best boxing writer on the planet. My favorite book, until I got his new one, was the Nelson Wolgast fight in the San Francisco boxing scene. This book was magnificent. And so I, I had to research Arnie, and Arnie's a sociologist. He taught at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, University of Nebraska, and the Tuskegee University. He's also, they say, a leading authority. Uh-uh. He's the leading authority on the history of boxing and American sports gambling. He's the leading authority on the planet. He lives and writes in Las Vegas. He's also the editor-in-chief of the Sweet Science Online. If you haven't read that, you haven't read anything about boxing. And um, it mentions the other credits, which I just said. Uh, this is his fifth book, Clash of the Little Giants, to fight between Canada's George Dixon and Terry McGovern. And it's, it's an extreme, it's an incredible privilege and pleasure to have the wonderful and magnificent Mr. Arnie K. Lang on. Arnie, welcome. Uh, you're being too generous, but thank you, Lou. That's, I've never had an introduction quite like that, but I appreciate it. Well, they should all be like that. I mean, I'm telling you, every author, I can name them all to you. If you want to know how to write about a boxing book, read Arnie Lang. He, he knows what to do. There's no excess verbiage. He gets all the facts in. It's written entertainingly. You learn and you love. And, you know, that you can't say anything better than that. Um, well, of course, we, we both share an interest in... in uh boxing in the old days in the early days of queensbury boxing i've my my main interest when i write books is the uh, era around the that that straddles the beginning of the of the 20th century you know the early 1900s late 1890s it's a fascinating era uh you know the sport was uh, you know hadn't found its footing yet uh uh, there was a lot going on, and 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 it was really a very interesting era. And the people that fought back then, I'm not sure how good they were in terms of could they beat Terence Crawford today. I rather suspect not. But these were tough, rugged guys, uh, uh, and and very very interesting characters. Yeah, it, it's you know it's it's great that you say that. I love that era too. And these guys, and you do this better than anyone on earth. They deserve to be remembered. So you put the flesh on the bones. And you make them real people. And when I when I read this book, your most recent book, I just thought after reading, I thought it's criminal. People don't know Terry McGovern. They don't know how great he was. He and when I Angelo Dundee, my mentor was friends of Charlie Goldman, who trained him. Uh huh. And Charlie, as you know better than anyone, was idolized Terry McGovern. Yeah. And, uh, they, Charlie was a small guy too. He was smaller than Terry McGovern. He, he, was he tiny. fought in the lowest weight classes. But yeah, he was Marciano's trainer, and 
he could talk about Terry McGovern for hours. He, he patterned his hair after Terry McGovern. He wore <laughs> I didn't know that. Hat. Yeah, and he said to Angelo, there never was a fighter like him. He said, you, you, you could only, he said, film can't do him justice. He said, not even Dempsey was like him. He's, he called him, and I use this in my book, an elemental force in nature. He said, he came at you like he was shot out of a cannon. Yeah, what, what you know, I'm actually less interested in, in, in Terry McGovern's style of fighting and so forth uh, than I am the reaction of people to him. And in his heyday, it was a very brief heyday, but in his heyday, there was no uh, athlete more admired in Brooklyn than Terry McGovern. The, the only <laughs> the one I can think of it maybe was was uh, Gil Hodges of the Dodgers when the Dodgers finally won the World Series. Uh, uh, for a time there, Gil Hodges was sainted. And uh, the Irish community of Brooklyn in Terry McGovern's day sainted him too. Mm -hmm. And deservedly so. I mean, when you talk about, you know, versus Bud Crawford, the more I read about John L. Sullivan and, and Bert Sugar mentioned that, you know, he said Sullivan wasn't, he wasn't a guy who stood there and, and a lot of fighters and looked, you know, fainted and looked for shots. He said Sullivan was basically a barroom brawler. The guy just came in looking to take you out with one shot. So yep. it's incredible that anyone would have thought he had a chance against a guy like Corbett, but McGovern had skills. Right, McGovern knew what to do. He was taught well, and he had a brother that fought too, didn't he? Uh, yeah, he did have a brother who wasn't uh, uh, nearly as distinguished as he was. He actually had two brothers. I believe uh, uh, the other one also dabbled in boxing, and then the the brother you're referencing was good enough to be a main event fighter, but he wasn't nearly uh, in Terry McGovern's class. Is, is it fair to say that fighters like McGovern or Terrell Gotti, uh, they have exciting fighters, but short shelf lives? Yes, um, obviously. Uh, uh, you know, well, of course, we, we don't know if Gotti would have had dementia, but he certainly, uh, you know, had all the preconditions that, that uh, uh, we associate with dementia. Dementia is funny for some people that, strikes in late middle age and for just about every boxer who fights a lot of rounds uh, it creeps on uh, up on them very late in life and gets commingled with other kinds of uh, ailments and so forth so we really can't attribute their demise to dementia but it happens in so many cases we know uh, that punches to the head uh, over a long period of time uh, you know almost inevitably means that 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 someone's you know, just not going to die the way and with the kind of dignity we all hope to die with. Right. I, uh, Ferdy Pacheco wrote in his book how Ali would lay against the ropes and he would say to, um, Ali would say to him, well, I'm toughening up my brain. And he said, Muhammad, you can't toughen your brain and your organs like your fingers when you're learning guitar. <laughs> Actually, Muhammad Ali, the, uh, you know, he was interviewed in two different uh issues of Playboy magazine uh, uh, many years apart. And in the second interview, I don't know the exact year, but Ali would say the same thing. He would say, when I spar, when I spar, I lean against the ropes and I let my opponent hit me in the head because I've got to toughen that muscle. But why? <laughs> That's not a muscle. 
No. That, that, that's, you know, and, and, and certainly, uh, uh, you know, looking back, it was inevitable almost that uh, Muhammad Ali, this great, great human being, uh, was going to die in such dire circumstances. Yes. And, you, you know, it's interesting you say that because I spoke to my neurologist and I asked him about Ali. And he said, well, I can't make a diagnosis in any fighter unless I examine them. But he right. said, from the last time you mentioned it to me, I looked up some statistics, you know, from from six from when he won the title to when he first left in 67 he was getting hit maybe 20 times a fight in the head if that he said yes. after that he's getting hit 300 times a fight maybe 120 times in the head times 40 fights he said the brain can't take that that's right it and, it, and it didn't no and, and uh, yeah with with mcgovern his his descent from great fighter into dementia was a lot quicker. It was similar to Ad Wolgas. Yes. Similar style, but who you wonderfully described in the, you know, in, in your other book, it was similar to him, right? Whereas Dixon's was more played out or drawn out over a long period of time. Yes. And and that's and in most cases, like I say, uh, dementia or CTE or Parkinson's, whatever you uh, want to call it. In most cases, it uh, for a boxer who's fought a lot of rounds, it happens later in life and it sort of creeps up on him. And, uh, uh, but in the case of Terry McGovern and Wolgast, uh, it, it happened quite, you know, it actually, you could see the symptoms of it while they were still fighting. In their 20s, yeah. And I guess would you that has to be attributed to their to their style. That yeah, and also obviously there's a genetic factor involved here. You know, the, the strangest thing is I uh, many years ago I, I did a radio show here in Las Vegas for a, a quite a long time, and one time I had Archie Moore. He actually came with George Foreman. Archie Moore, if you look at his record, he had over 200 fights. He answered the bell for an enormous number of rounds. When he was on my radio show, he was probably in his early 70s, and he was still sharp. He's, he had good recall. And, uh, he didn't slur. There was no indication of any cognitive disorder. And so obviously it's uh, you know, some people, are, you know, kind of like people we've known uh, in our generation who've uh, smoked cigarettes uh, well into their 80s <laughs> with, with no discernible lung problems. Well, that happens, but of course it's in a very small minority. That's right. I when I had my heart attack, I asked my my uh, cardiologist. I said I have a friend, and he's six two, three hundred and fifty pounds. He smokes six cigars a day. And she said, "How old are his? When did his grandparents die?" I said, "They're still alive." Yeah, hundreds. He said. She said it's genetics. You don't have that yeah. on the side. Yeah. So, you know, when you look at someone like George Chavallo, he's in a very bad shape now. But so I've heard. But it didn't hit him till his 80s. Yes. Like yes. I knew him, but he doesn't know where he is or who he is. But yes, that didn't happen till he was 82, 81. Yes. And up until then, he was fine. But it's just Angelo Dundee said no one gets out of the sport unscathed. And I guess, would you agree that Dixon had it, but because of his fighting style, it took longer to afflict him? Of course, the alcoholism didn't help either. Yeah. 
Well, both George Dix and Terry McGovern died in there. They were both 37 years old. And, and uh, uh, you know, so their situations were atypical. But I think in the case of George Dixon, it was the accumulation of rounds more than anything else. Uh, you know, you know that uh, you know, and 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 also the fact that the, being a you know being a black fighter in that era, he was exploited like all black fighters, and so when when he could no longer make a living with his fists, uh, he had nothing to fall back on financially to a uh, you know to to to. Uh, you know, smooth his transition into, uh, you know, his golden years. That's, you know, and partly Tom O'Rourke, who who slapped him around at times and treated him like yes. And same with Al Herford and Joe Gans. I mean, they, oh, can, yeah. they can blackball you and there's nothing you can do about it. Yes. Al Herford from what I, Al Herford was a Baltimore man and Gans pretty much, Joe Gann's manager for his entire career. They did have a period of separation, but but uh, uh, Al Herford came back to Joe Gann's toward the end of Gann's career. But from what I've read about Al Herford, he was uh, he was just not a good person. He no, was, sir, he was, I mean, he was a dirt, that good. Yeah, there's no other way to put it. I mean, he had he had other uh, among other things. Uh, uh, he was the head of the uh, bookmakers that operated at the uh, racetrack there in Baltimore. And so he would collect their, you know, if if they had a, what they called a pitch, if they were allowed to come on the racetrack and take bets, they had to pay off Al Herford, you know, because he was the gatekeeper, so to speak. And then, uh, uh, you know, I'm sure he exploited those people or took advantage of them just as he did the boxers who fought at this club. Yeah, Dixon said he never once got what he was promised in a contract from Al Herford, and it's nothing he could do about it. Yeah, and of course Al Herford's not here to defend himself, but I'm sure that's true. Uh, I, I know one of the chapters in my book, I have the, the Gans-McGovern fight which you know very well, you know better than anyone. And, you know, where Gans took a dive. And what I've read was that Herford said, Frank Earn won't fight you again for the lightweight title unless he thinks he can beat you. And I mean, that doesn't make sense because he still had to wait two or three years to get him again, even though he deliberately took a dive and nothing happened to McGovern. The only one who suffered was was uh, Gans. Well, I'm not sure anything should have happened to McGovern. Um, my opinion is a lot of fights in boxing history that are thought to have been fixed weren't. Maybe that's, I've lived too long in Las Vegas, but however, it's pretty hard to think that Gans McGovern was not a fake and the fault was Gans and his manager, Al Herford. The fight was in 1910. You could fight only six rounds back then uh, in uh, Illinois, and the fight was in Chicago, but despite the uh, small number of rounds, it was a big, big event. It was really a real mega fight, uh, and it got the whole fight fans all over the country talking, and Gann's performance was so limp uh, that, that A, either he was drugged, or B, uh, you know, he did what he was supposed to do, which was lose intentionally, 
And it often has been said that fighters as good as Gans, who are really smooth and clever and shifty and so forth, that those people <laughs> don't know how to take a dive well, if you follow well, an actor. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you know, it's when 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 they don't fight full bore, it's just obvious for some reason. When you're that when you're that good, you just uh, you know to revert to someone uh, uh, fighting under wraps or whatever is just uh, not easy to do. No, and that was common with him. One of the few times they say Ray Arcel got angry is they said, "I we heard that Benny Leonard and Jack Johnson and Gans." And 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 Dixon and McGovern had a lot of fixed fights, and ourselves said not in the way you believe it. He said it's not that their fights were fixed; it's that people were so afraid of them that unless they promised not to kill them immediately, they wouldn't get in the ring with them. Yeah, and, and that was especially true of black fighters back in that era, yeah. who uh, you know who were told, "Don't take this guy out quick because the paying customers will be disappointed." Um, Please let this fight go rounds uh, before you <laughs> before you start fighting full bore. Yeah, let let him bloody your nose a bit or your lip and make it look like he has a chance. I mean, yeah. you know the story of Dixon where someone said to him, "You never fight on the ropes, and you always fight in ring center." And he pulled his pant leg up, and and many of you even been in your your book and. He had gashes in his leg because people from his his opponent's trainers and fans of his opponent would hit him in the leg with things, with implements. I am, you know, I found a newspaper reference from uh, Dixon's manager, uh, Tom O'Rourke, which indicated that, that often when Dixon fought, uh, ringsiders would hit him in the ankles, reach through the ropes and hit him. But yet, I'm very skeptical of that. I'm really very, very skeptical. We, uh, you know, in a private conversation, we talked about uh, Nat Fleischer's uh, five-part series on the black athlete, going back, by the way, to the bare knuckle days in England and bringing it all the way forward to the uh, to Joe Lewis. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's so much in there that I in those books that I consider just lore, not facts, but lore. They make for good stories. They, they, uh, <laughs> Ned Fleischer understood that, uh, that for these books to make any money, they had to appeal to young readers, uh, readers who would otherwise uh, turn to adventure novels. And uh, he put a lot of fiction <laughs> <laughs> into his books. And even though Tom O'Rourke once said that Dixon uh, uh, got whacked in the lower extremities as he was fighting uh, when he got on the ropes in certain locales, I still take that with a grain of salt. I just have trouble believing that. Yeah, I, I would be afraid to approach a fighter, any fighter, and I think that fear would go back to even then. You, you'd have to be incredibly stupid to, to go out and do something like that to a professional partner. yeah i just it just uh i you know i i, I just have trouble believing it <laughs> okay you know? So, you know i've never seen i was gonna say you 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 have in the nelson wolgas book you have and lennox lewis when i showed this to him was blown away you have the single greatest boxing photograph i've ever seen in my entire life including the alley standing over liston 
you have the photograph of of the three of them of 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 uh, uh, Dixon, Walcott, Barbados Joe, and Joe Gans uh, standing, sitting. You know, I'll show this on camera. Yeah, and that to me is the most remarkable piece of not just sports history, but but American and world history. That is incredible. And I wanted to say, I'm not sure. I wanted to ask you, the man in between Dixon and Barb and Walcott with the white hat, because you have it unknown. It looks a bit like Byers, George Byers, but I'm not sure if that is. Could be. You know, but that's uh, that's a remarkable yeah. photo. Yeah, Dixon came out of uh, uh, you know Eastern Canada, Prince Edward Island, uh, Halifax, Halifax uh, Nova Scotia, yeah. and so forth. Uh, as did George Byers, mm -hmm. as as did a lot of uh, Langford uh, black fighters who found their way to Boston around the turn of the century. George Godfrey, Sam Langford. It was it was quite a colony, and and uh, most of those, uh, not all certainly, but a good number of those outstanding. And long forgotten black boxers actually were born uh, in Nova Scotia, or Prince Edward Island, one of the eastern provinces of Canada. Yeah, Byers and and Godfrey were first cousins. And when I when I tell when I've tried to pitch this as a documentary and to Canadian Post Office for a stamp, I always tell them the the black population in PEI today is infinitesimal, but in the 1880s it was half of infantismal and to produce two outstanding world-class fighters yeah in such a small area yeah it's, it's just unheard of yeah and of course they had to go to the united states to hone their skills and almost oh, invariably that meant boston back then yeah and I, I mean i you know one thing i get asked all the time why did Gotti go to arturo Gotti go to new jersey why why did art hafey go to san diego why because there's nothing up here Mm -hmm. it's not, they don't have the world-class trainers and they don't have world-class sparring and yeah and you know george chivalo said said to me i'll he said about himself he'll be the canadian heavyweight champion 50 years after he's dead so he said you know saying that you're the champion at canada he said it's nice but really it counts for nothing so if you want to make it as a boxer or as a comedian like jim carrey or as a writer, you got to be in the states. That's just the way it is, and, and, and larger scale, more people. Yeah. Don't. Dixon, when when yeah. he when he came down, I mean, when when he fought McGovern the first time, he was already on the downside of his career, wasn't he? Yes. Um, I, I, it, it's a lot of people think that Dixon actually. Uh, uh, some people. In fact, there's a book about George Dixon, which actually ends when George Dixon goes to New Orleans and performs on that on that triple header down there, with, uh, topped by John L. Sullivan Corbett. They were they were you know it's called a boxing carnival. It was a three night affair with uh, uh, title fights uh, on each night, culminating with the big shebang, John L. Sullivan and Corbett. And some people actually think that that was the peak, uh, even though George Dixon didn't fight somebody who was going to give him uh, much of a, a, a fight, a guy named Jack Skelly. Uh, some people think that was the peak of Dixon's career, and then there was a slow descent after that. And, of course, he didn't fight McGovern until some time after that. Why? 
I mean, Skelly was basically an amateur, but amateurs back then had more, was. Yeah, had more respect than professionals. You know. Yes. Well, back then there were a lot of uh, amateurs who were. Uh, it was. It was. I mean. I mean the. The ranks of amateur boxers were very, very deep uh, back circa 1900. There were many, many, many more amateur boxers than pros. And some of the best amateurs uh, uh, could hold their own with established professionals. Uh, they thought that of Jack Skelly. Uh, they but but uh, and, and Skelly probably uh, could uh, hold his own with a uh, run-of-the-mill professional. He beat some pretty good pros. But against uh, George Dixon, he was out of his league. George Dixon, George Dixon was just on a different level mm -hmm. than his contemporaries in his weight class. The I, I know uh, James J. Corbett, you know, fought as an amateur and wouldn't turn professional until he was offered these great sums of money that he yeah yeah just just couldn't turn down. So on the on the Carnival Champions, he, the first night was I think Dixon, right? And then actually, that was the middle fight, is my understanding. Oh, so the first, the first fight was Jack McAuliffe. Jack McAuliffe, what, what, who is the lightweight champion? Napoleon and, of the prize ring. Pardon me. The Napoleon of the prize ring. Yes, Jack McAuliffe, who retired undefeated. He was the first uh, uh, fight, and then the uh, Dixon Skelly was the middle fight, and then of course the big one was the. Uh, was Sullivan Corbett. They were three successive nights in New Orleans. And he also, McAuliffe also fought a Torontonian named Harry Gilmore, who, who who gave him a good fight. Didn't win, but gave him a good fight. A Canadian, a can, uh, considered the lightweight champion of Canada, but yeah. maybe best known for the boxing club he operated in Chicago, right. which turned down a wealth of, of great, great fighters in the smaller weight classes. Uh, around 1900, 1905, and so forth. It's interesting when I read about his comments about Will Gast and Mexican Joe Rivers. And he said, I'm sorry that everyone feels this way, but I was ringside. I wasn't fourth row. I was ringside. And I didn't see Ad Will Gast land a punch that was foul. And of course, the other people said, well, then maybe you need glasses. Because... You know the punch was definitively foul, but then again, on the film of the fight, you can't tell. The yeah. Eagles film yeah. yeah. You know, so Dixon fights McGovern, and McGovern at that point was still at the top level of his career. Yes, Dixon was on the way up, and uh, I mean, I'm sorry, McGovern was on the way up. George Dixon was on the way down, and. They Which were, is the nature of boxing, by the way. <laughs> right. And Terry McGovern was an anomaly in that he he wasn't racist like a lot of managers and fighters. He genuinely liked Joe Gans. He had black friends, Goldman, Jewish friends. I mean, he, he didn't just he didn't discriminate against people. Right? Is that I um, don't know. I go to gyms in this town. I live in Las Vegas, and I go to local gyms uh, uh, quite a bit. It's uh, I've uh, hopefully I'll stumble on a good human interest story, and, and frequently I do. And I don't know any white fighters who are racist. I mean, if because I, th I think there's a mutual respect among 
uh, fighters of different ethnic groups that wipes away a lot of the prejudice you see in the general society. Right. Okay. If I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not Jewish, but if I was a boxer and, and uh, back in the thirties where every third fight was against a Jewish opponent, I don't see how I could possibly be anti-Semitic because, uh, uh, you know, there's, there's a bond that's formed between prize fighters and, uh, uh, you know, that tends to wipe away a lot of that nonsense. That's a good point. You know, uh, Angelo gave me Jimmy McLaren's phone number. I waited my whole life to meet him. And yes. I got to speak to him briefly. This is like a year or two before he died. And I asked him about Benny Leonard. And he said, I, I didn't want him to take the fight. He was my idol. I didn't want to hurt him. Yeah. And, and I, I would I would have given him the money, but he said he didn't want it. You don't want charity. So he said, uh, he said, I don't know if you're aware of this, son, but I sued the New York papers because they called me the Jew killer, the Hebrew scourge. And he said, I went to them and he said, these are my friends. It's not personal. Yeah. Just yeah. A fight. He said, I still go out when I'm in New York for dinner with Benny Leonard three or four times a week. I'm still friends with Sid Terrace. I'm still friends of, I'm, he said, I'm great. I was great friends of Barney Ross. He spoke every single night. With whom he had three classic fights. Right. And and he said it, it wasn't personal. I thought I won the third fight. He got it. But I'm not angry at him. You know, and when, when he had his drug problems, I tried to help him. These And just as you said, we're, we're, we share an experience no other two people on earth shared. So yeah. he said the racism doesn't, it, it can enter into it. You know, but... McGovern and in particular when he was fighting on the way up I mean he he didn't he never drew the color line when he was champion like John L Sullivan did he fought anyone right. and everyone you know and right. he, he was great what was the turning point that put him on the downside was it the was it too much acting in the way yeah. the ring or was it the Corbett fight Corbett just took it out of him yeah the first, that's a good question um you mentioned acting back in Terry McGovern's day and in George Dixon's day, uh, a boxer would make more money traveling in a country with vaudeville troops. He would have a little skit, a little shtick, and be part of a vaudeville troupe. And the most prominent boxers, actually, that was their major source of income until the arrival of fight films. Now, you ask a funny thing about Terry McGovern is that uh, he's one of those fighters that seemed to have grown old overnight. Uh, when he fought uh, uh, young Corbett II uh, in Connecticut on Thanksgiving Day, uh, in, I think 1902, and was knocked out early uh, in a robust fight. Um, and it was a real shocker. It was one of the biggest upsets uh, uh, ever up to that point in time. But it was like he had grown old overnight. And we've seen that in the case of some boxers. We have it in terms of their ring uh, acumen. And in, in uh, McGovern's case, uh, you could build a case that he spent too much time on the road uh, with vaudeville troops. I mean, if you're uh, going on the road, you're not keeping good hours because, uh, uh, you know, these are evening performances. And so when you should be in a good boxer, should be going to bed, you know. So, so that was uh, it. Was theorized that that uh, Terry McGovern's uh, hollow performance 
against young Corbett II was a result of the fact that he had spent too much time on the road with vaudeville troops. And so he just wasn't in the right mind frame mentally yeah. and physically. He just wasn't trained well enough. Yeah, you know what? Yes. And also, I think he had some domestic problems. I, I saw one illusion. I didn't put it in my book, but I saw one illusion which suggested that uh, his wife may have cheated on him and he might have discovered it and that messed with his mind. But I didn't put that in the book. Maybe I shouldn't even say it, but, <laughs> but no, and it wasn't in a boxing book, by the way. Pardon me? I said it was not in a boxing book, by the way. It was right. in a, well, in that, a, but that would be enough to crush someone that you would go out and not care. You know, but but in your book, you, you mentioned how he he just rushed right at him, which was a foolish strategy. You know, because with McGovern, there was no feeling out rounds. That's correct. He did not. He did not. He, he was. He was. That. That's true. He charged right at his opponent. Uh, was that just the <laughs> only style? The bell rang. Pardon me. Was that the only style that? I mean, it didn't occur to him to think I, I haven't fought him, so maybe I should have seen what he has, or he didn't I, care. I can't. I can't put myself in his mind. But, oh, okay. Okay. But he was, you know, Mike Tyson was sort of the same way. There was no fancy Dan about him. Right. Uh, <laughs> you, know, you know, you know, so, so, so who knows? Uh, when, when McGovern's, uh, to me, his marquee win uh, uh, didn't come against Dixon because they were in different stages of development, but against an English boxer called Peddler Palmer. That was called the Box of Tricks. They fought... Uh, up in Westchester County, about a 30-minute train train ride from Manhattan. And uh, uh, McGovern just blew right through him and took him out in the opening round. And Palmer was a, considered, especially by people in England, to be the cleverest fighter on the planet. But but uh, cleverness, uh, you know, can't stop a hurricane. No. <laughs> it's funny because I've read about that. You're... The, the way you mentioned that in your book is wonderful and just how people the british at ringside and even some of the americans were saying well this could go 15 or 20 and palmer is going to do this and do that yeah yeah the bell rings bang sure. out they said the same thing about leah about michael spinks when he fought mike tyson in atlantic city that you know yeah. Every expert says, "Well, the longer the fight goes, the more the better chance Michael Spinks has of defeating Tyson." Well, I, theoretically, I guess that was true, but of course, Mike Tyson didn't let you know didn't let uh, you know Michael Spinks have a second of rest and took him out what ninety one seconds or something. Yeah. So, so all that theory went out. Went out. <laughs> I love throw that, that out with the garbage. It's my favorite story about the word theoretically. Yes, I, I just finished a book by Doris Kearns Goodwin about Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt in the mm -hmm. Front during the Second World War. And they said two of Franklin Roosevelt's cabinet members, uh, uh, Harry Hopkins and Harold X, were talking. And Harold X was against, against FDR programs and welfare to help people. And he said, it'll toughen them up. And theoretically, they'll be tougher and better in the future. And Harry Hopkins said, the problem is people don't eat theoretically. <laughs> they eat every day. 
I had to laugh, but I thought that's a good point. You know, <laughs> theoretically, the fight's supposed to go, but that doesn't yeah. mean anything. Yeah. Right? So, yeah, I mean, it, it, are there more films of McGovern that were that we know were taken other than the fight with Dixon? Because I haven't seen any. I, you know, I'm not a fight film collector, and I'm right. not the person to ask, really. Um, um, you know, the late Bill Caton and Jim Jacobs had that wonderful storehouse of old films, and some of which have popped up on YouTube nowadays, but I'm not aware. I, I really, I'm not qualified to answer your question. Well, I spoke with Steve Lott, who worked with them, the late Steve Lott. Yes. And he was saying the problem with the films from that era, all fight films were owned by the mafia. So he said, we could get them and buy them from the mafia for a lot of money and still had to keep paying and paying. But he said they owned them all. And so- Yeah, not, they, they didn't own the originals, but they came to own, if they, especially if there had been only one copy. Right. They came to own it. You know, obviously the word mafia didn't exist back in the days of John L. Sullivan and whatever. Right. But, but uh, the, the few fights of his and his contemporaries, Corbett and so forth, the original fight films, uh, yeah, I've, I've read that. They originally fell into the hands of gangsters. And, uh, they weren't going to let them go <laughs> without a pretty penny. Steve Lott told me a story where Bill Caton sent him somewhere in the Bronx to pay a guy. He said it was a five foot two old Jewish man in his 90s. He invites Steve Lott in. He has his Jamaican caretaker make some cookies for him. And they're talking. And the guy says to Steve, you're a nice boy. Uh, and he, Steve gives him the check. Here's the box of films. And when they get back to the office, Steve said he almost had a stroke because there was an article on this guy that Bill Caton gave him. The guy was uh, one of the top Murder Incorporated killers. And he, <laughs> Steve said that he, he looked like a little nebbish in a cow. He said he was. That's why no one feared him when he walked up. Yeah. You wouldn't expect. He said, why wasn't he tried? Because it came out a year ago when he's 92. What are they going to do? I mean, they're not going to put him in jail now. And he only <laughs> killed gangsters. But yeah. this guy had incredible films. And Steve said the most valuable film, if you want to retire, is we know there were films of Harry Grepp, but they've never been found. So yeah, my friend Jason Wins Winders, who wrote a book on Dixon. Correct. Um, which you're aware of. Yeah, who I alluded to before. His book really ends... Uh, for all practical purposes, when Dixon uh, uh, is in New Orleans as part of that that uh, right. uh, triple header, that festival of champions. And he found the book Dixon wrote at the University of Windsor in Ontario just by fluke. He, he just volunteered one weekend to help go through old dusty boxes and he yeah. pulled it out. I and think obvi obviously it's obvious to me that book was ghostwritten. Yeah, uh, oh yeah. Uh, I mean, sure. And, and uh, most uh, uh, boxing memoirs of antiquarian prize fighters were all ghostwritten, and uh, you know, which is understandable. I mean, I mean, even today was, you know, when you know when when, <laughs> when Michelle Obama comes out with her memoir, she didn't just sit down by herself in a private room and write that out in longhand. Obviously, she had the assistance of a, oh, yeah. of a professional ghostwriter. 
Angelo told me once, I was telling him how I bought the book, The Greatest. And he said, the great thing about that book, Ali never wrote it, nor did he read it. Yeah. He said it was written by Richard Durham uh, from the yes. uh, Nation of Islam. And he yes. said, nothing in that book is of truth. Yeah. He said, that, yeah. never threw his medal in the river. He just lost it. Right. He, said, he loses a lot of things because yep. he doesn't care about material yeah. wealth, you know. So, so McGovern and Dixon. McGovern, are, does McGovern still have relatives that are alive today? I'm not aware. You would think so. Because uh, um, his son he did, he, he, no, he should. Let me put it this way. We know that his wife, he was only married once, and we know that uh, uh, they had a uh, one son, uh, and we know that both are deceased. And so he would not have any immediate relatives. But, of course, he had brothers and nephews and cousins, and I'm, I'm sure there are some uh, – people in his family tree that are still around, but I, I wouldn't know how to find them. I know that uh, his son died at 38, you said. His son died at a very young age, yeah. Do we know what from? Oh boy, you know, I knew at one time and I, I don't think it was... Uh, I, or... I, I I forget, to be honest, I forget. If you got 20 minutes, I'll go find a copy of the book and thumb through it and maybe I can dig it out. But I'm sorry, I don't want to put that through you. <laughs> with, with George Dixon, we know that he was married to Tom O'Rourke's sister, Kitty. Yes. And I don't know if he had any children or not. I'm not aware he did. Oh, okay. And, and, that, I and that marriage... There have been some who have questioned whether or not that was Tom O'Rourke's sister, although it's generally agreed that she was. He was married to a white woman. That's that's true. Um, but I don't know. That marriage eventually dissolved, but I couldn't find out when or what the circumstances were. But when George Dixon finally died, he died alone uh, in, a, in, a, in a basically in a boarding house. Yeah. Uh, in a room, a very, very, very sad. So, oh, excuse me. Okay. Yeah, he. It, it was, let me let me stop that. I'm sorry. No problem. Excuse me. Well. <laughs> I guess that's not how they do it on the major networks. I apologize. <laughs> We're not a major network by any, any means. I was going to say, I, I have tried with the help of Tony G, the British boxing historian, yes. to track Kitty O'Rourke. And I've gone on Ancestry.com. She just fell off the face of the earth. I yes. found little bits and pieces and one or two lines alluding to her from, from British newspapers that Tony sent me. But there's no... There's no record. George yeah. Dixon has a, a great, great grandnephew that's a school teacher in Toronto that I okay. speak to occasionally. And yeah. so I speak to him and he goes, you know, there's stories about this. And I like to hear them. He said, well, let's go out to a fight. There's no fights going on here. <laughs> you got to go to Montreal. There's a couple of promoters, as you know, in Montreal who have oh, yeah. been pretty active. And also I've been in touch with Rosalind Byers, who's a great great grandniece of George Byers. 
Okay. So she's had an interesting story, stories um, about him, but it would yeah. great. It would be great to find a a, a living relative of um, uh, Terry McGovern. The poster of the vaudeville thing is such a gorgeous poster. Yeah. Him. And it, it's hard for people today to realize how big a star he was. How many thousands yes. of people lined up to see him everywhere he went. Well, yeah, they, you know, I said you had to be part of vaudeville troops. They actually built plays around Terry McGovern. Uh, so it wasn't just, I mean, some of the boxing vaudevillians, basically they would do a little sparring session and uh, maybe invite someone out of the audience, usually a plant to come up and, and uh, uh, you know, and spar with. And uh, maybe Sugar Ray Robinson had a shtick where he was, jump rope he was just incredible a jump roper but they actually built plays around terry mcgovern he was that big and 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 or they they took plays that, that were successful and they made him the lead and that was a uh, uh, very unusual for for boxers uh, back in those days to uh, to to you know to get that kind of role uh, that went you know that went beyond the fact uh, that you know that made them something more than the occupation they had that of a prize fighter was it, it was it McGovern's not just his success in the ring but his his fact that he was so charismatic this was a good looking great looking young charismatic young man yeah it was a, he was a, I wouldn't call him a matinee idol but he was yeah he was a, you know, he was a good looking Irish kid you know and uh, the constituents for boxing back in McGovern's day were overwhelmingly Irish. Uh, it helped to be Irish. And, and most of the fighters back, and most of the white fighters circa 1900, uh, not only the fighters, but the seconds, the managers, the promoters were Irish. Mm -hmm. Tom O'Rourke, all those guys. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah he, he, because they said John O'Sullivan did the same thing, but he couldn't act. And the no. only one who was good was, was James J. Corbett. Who actually had a little bit of skill at it. I've read there, there were people who thought James J. Corbett was as good an actor as anyone else on the stage back then. Wow. You're right. And he was a great actor. With John L. Sullivan, uh, uh, his routine when he went on tour was usually uh, blacksmithing, like uh, like Bob Fitzsimmons. You know, they'd have a little, you know, he'd have a little thing where he'd forge something. But But as far as acting no no he that that was not his forte no there's a great story i read about him and i had i had to ask it might have been in andrew eisenberg's book um john o'sullivan in the irish in america i had to ask someone i i didn't know what it meant where he went on stage once because he was a notorious drunk and he said i'm i'm john o'sullivan i'm 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 drunker than a fiddler's bitch and I didn't know what that meant until I, I looked it up and I asked people and someone said back in, in, in those times, fiddlers in saloons would play the fiddle and people to say thank you would send them drinks, but they couldn't take the drinks because they'd get drunk and stop playing. So they had to have their wife take the drink and then their <laughs> wife would get hammered. And yes. so they said, I'm drunker than a fiddler's bitch. Uh, that's yeah. just, I've never heard that before in my life. That's fascinating. Yeah, neither have I. I mean, it's that's, this, this uh, podcast has been very educational for me. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, 
I, I'm trying to remember what I wanted to ask you about. Uh, yes. Uh, so McGovern, McGovern didn't draw the line about fighting, fight wh whoever he would fight, he would fight. And Dixon sh certainly didn't have the, uh, the ability to do that. Dixon fought Walter Egerton, right? The Kentucky Rosebud and knocked and the Rosebud knocked him out. But then wasn't Dixon suffering from a fever and they agreed to just spar and Rosebud took advantage of it or it was a legitimate knockout? Apparently it was a legitimate knockout. And we should point out that uh, 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 they kept fighting after Dixon was allowed time to recover. <laughs> which you never see today. Uh, Walter Edgerton was a long-in-the-tooth black fighter from Philadelphia, had a big reputation there in the so-called city of brotherly love, and he and Dixon sparred several times on on vaudeville stages. And uh, after Edgerton knocked him out, there was a move afoot to put him together in a real prize fight. Uh, but that, for some reason, that... that uh, and died on the vine, but Edgerton and Dixon fought several times, and at least at least one occasion, Edgerton knocked him out. And yeah, Tom O'Rourke said that Dixon. This was, by the way, a charity fight, and uh, Dixon fought a lot of fights where a, a good portion of the proceeds would go to some charity. Uh, this particular fight with Edgerton in Philadelphia, as I recall, uh, um, I believe there was a strike there of. of people working in uh, factories that produce some uh, sweaters or something like that. And it was a prolonged strike and the, uh, the, the uh, proceeds were earmarked for the strikers and their families. And, uh, and Dixon, from what we've read, uh, normally would not have taken this, but he didn't want to disappoint the people who would benefit from it. And so he went into the ring with a fever perhaps and got himself knocked out. One of the things, I think I read it in your book, is that what appeared in the paper about fights often depended on what fighter's manager got to the phone first. That, yeah, that came, that, that line came from a book by an old boxing manager called Dan Morgan, Dumb Dan Morgan, they called oh. him. He was so talkative <laughs> that they called him Dumb Dan. And he said, yeah, out in the hinterlands, uh, you know, where, where they didn't, you know, the fight wasn't big enough to have a telegrapher at ringside. So you had to get to the telegraph office, wherever the telegraph office was. And in and, and, and the hinterlands, you, you know, there might not be any boxing uh, writers present. Okay. So the result of the fight, uh, you know, depended on who got to the telegraph office first you know, and sent the dispatch back to New York or wherever. And so, uh, <laughs> you know, obviously, uh, whoever got to the telegraph first had a biased uh, opinion of what had actually just transpired. Which but that, that frustrates, and, and you being a historian would know this, it's the most frustrating thing. And it's actually the, the most fascinating thing is you read reports of old fights in different papers and the discrepancies are huge. I mean, yes. I mean, it's it's you can see, you can you can see that somebody's lying, if not both. Yes. <laughs> you know yes. what I mean? And and it and it's it's frustrating, but that but then it sends us off to try and find the real truth, and that's and and so that's why we actually like it too. It's fuel for uh, an author. 
Well, that's one of the thousands of things I love about your book. And 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 in this one in particular, you mentioned that. You, you said, you know, either this happened, but another newspaper reported this happened. And and it drives you nuts reading it, thinking yes. they can't both have happened. I mean, isn't there a but it's it's unbelievable. And and you have to wonder who was watching the fight. I mean, I, I, are you that pro that fighter that you can't be honest but like you said it, it it leaves you going to try to do a deeper dive yes and and, and into what happened so yes um you know in my book the first fight that i cover is from 1772 and the one that we can not categorically but we can pretty much say it was a fixed fight there have been other fits fights in Britain, but it's hard to really say for sure it was. Yes. This is the one where all evidence pointed to it. And Tony was just showing me the different uh, reports, but he said, if you really do your work, you'll find contemporary reports Yes, that, that will tell you what happened. And then you can draw you know, from that what actually happened. Yeah, one of the... Uh, uh, Nowadays, there are so many old newspapers on the web. I'm talking about newspapers that have long died, <laughs> you know, and, and uh, uh, there's so much material now on the Internet. That, you know, I remember going to college and when it was time to write a term paper, it meant a trip to the library and scrolling through these clunky microfilm machines yeah. in the library. When I went to University of Nebraska, the only old newspapers I remember on microfilm were the New York Times, the Chicago Tribune, the Wall Street Journal, eh, maybe the LA Times, and of course, the local paper, whatever that. So you didn't, you know, you had to depend upon what was in these papers. And some of these papers were high tone. And so they didn't cover the sporting spectrum, like like the uh, tabloids, the, the uh, burgeoning tabloids did. There were no tabloids in the on microfilm in the library, no old issues of the New York Post or any of these That's papers. And so you got a very narrow perspective historically when it came to the sphere of sports. But now there's so much cool stuff on the web, it's amazing. Yeah, it's, I, you know, when I, I started university in 1978, and same as you, I would say, well, that's another eight hours I'm going to be spending in the reference library. That's great. <laughs> and when I would look up fighters, you know, Harry Gilmore, Carl Tremaine, different fighters, I would think, um, especially of Gilmore, there's nothing on him in, in the two main papers. And yes. one of the librarians said, those are the two main papers that exist today. They existed then, but there were other smaller papers. Oh, sure. And I didn't realize that. And she gave yeah. me a list of like 20 of them. And I yeah. had to go through each one and go, oh, okay, here's a good article on, on that. Yeah. With, with Carl Tremaine, who was born in Listowel, Ontario, there's very little of him on the internet at all. We know he was front, he was Canadian. And then Steve Canton wrote something about how that he was actually Italian and half his family lived in, in, in um, uh, Detroit and then Cleveland and the other half lived here because they were too big to all live together. And so the family in Detroit says, you know, he, he, and he had his career in Cleveland, but, um, 
when I spoke to family members in Canada, they said, that's completely false. Yeah. So they said, we've read the article. There's no truth. So it's hard to find, you know, at times based on what you see. Yeah. You know, you can only go by what they have. So doing an article on Joe Grimm was not difficult because there were so many hundreds of things on him. Whereas other fighters, you know, especially yeah. with the coverage in, in, in Canada, but McGovern and Dixon were covered all over the world. I mean, these were world and, figures. Yeah. And after his career went south and his skills had dulled, George Dixon spent the better part of three years in England uh, and had a ton of fights over there. 514 uh, rounds, you said he fought. Pardon me? You said he fought 514 rounds. That could be. I, I forget That's the exact incredible. number. It, it compressed within like a three year, three, three and a half year span. Wow. I mean, that's amazing. Some of those rounds, by the way, in England, circa 1900, were two minute rounds. So we should put that in perspective. Which ones were and which ones weren't? I wasn't able to narrow it down that, that, that tightly. And did Dixon. Dixon's lack of money, did that come from the fact that he was a gambler and a drinker as well? Yeah, he spent it quickly and as well as as Tom O'Rourke, uh, you know, ripping him off? I guess it's hard to say. Many boxers in Dixon's era were degenerate horse players. That was, uh, it's well, for one thing, uh, horse racing was so big back then, but, but so many... Uh, boxers, uh, young Corbett II, for example, and Terry McGovern uh, blew a lot of money at the racetrack. That's that's where the, uh, boxers would go in their downtime, actually. There was a lot of uh, overlap between the boxing gym and the racetrack. Racetrack, you'd meet the same people in both places. Right. Yeah, that's, it still happens today. I mean, people, you know, back, back then, entertainers lost fortunes at the racetrack too. They just couldn't resist it. At the racetrack and in what were called pool rooms, which were off-track betting places, which at one time were all over the country, all over the United States. The movie, The Sting, that wonderful comedy, I love that movie so much. Uh, their depiction of the uh, off-track betting facility in Chicago is spot on from what I've read. It's just, it's that's exactly what they look like uh, with the results being read off a ticker by a person with a uh, you know a microphone a megaphone yeah. or whatever and and it was and, and they're controlled by the mafia the mob controlled all all of those things uh they control some fast well I mean, the betting part you gotta think about that because they were all over the country there were a lot of mom and pop places that's true, but I mean, the major places in LA and New York, Lansky and Luciano had that, and and yeah, so a lot of that. that well, yeah, when when sport uh, when horse players bet on the telephone instead of going to a betting shop, uh, yeah, the guy at the other end of the telephone had some connection to organized crime by and large. That's true, but the actual uh, physical place, uh, you know, and like like I say, the United States was honeycombed with off-track betting parlors. 
the actual physical place. Eh, a lot of them were bomb and pop operations. Uh, the mafia may have had its uh, fingers in such things as the wall boards, which showed the races around the track and, and, and uh, you know, maybe even the chalk that was used to put the odds on the blackboard. Uh, but a lot of those were kind of mom and pop operations run by local people. Yeah, the mob didn't really get involved in boxing until the Dempsey Carponche fight because the million dollar gate, they looked at it and thought, there's money to be taken here. Where it's before, even for Burns Johnson, 30 grand, it, it, I read where someone said it, it, they would be paying out more to their thugs than they would taking the money in. So yeah. it wasn't until the million dollar gates where they thought, okay, we can control this. That kind of made sense. It's generally agreed that the uh, uh, the mobsters were thickest in the uh, sport of professional boxing during the Depression years. Yeah, with with um, uh, only the killer Madden and George Chevalier knew him, and and uh, I didn't real. I knew Carbo and Palermo were involved in it. Frankie Carmo and Blinky Palermo. I didn't thought they got involved to the mid, late 40s. And Chris Dundee said, no, no, no. They were there in the early 30s. They, they were right there. And he said, back then, there was no, the only thing you wanted to hear, they wanted to hear was, yes, sir. And there's nothing you could do about it. And, and black fighters, once again, had nothing, uh, got ripped off by them. And Chris Dundee said, the only fighter who probably wasn't touched was Jimmy McLaren because his manager, Pop Foster, had actually grew up in England beside Oni Madden. And so no one screwed with McLaren. But I don't know if I agree because the third, yeah. he was going to retire after he won the title. Um, when he rewon the title yeah. uh, from Ross. And when he defended against Ross in the third fight, he said, if I win this, I'm gone. And what I've been read or been told is that, you know, the depression, he's the biggest money earner in boxing. They couldn't let him go. You know, Could so. be, you know, <laughs> as I say, this podcast is very educational for me. Okay. So I, I, I know the people you reference, but I don't know the minute details the way you do. Well, you, you heard of the, the fight with, Barbados, Walcott, and Kid Levine. Yes, sir. Skusigo, right? Where gamblers yes. told that Walcott, you got to lose. Yeah. And well, that was, was yeah. That, that, and, you know, that wasn't uncommon back then either, where uh, understanding that if uh, a fight went the distance, uh, uh, you know, it was a prearranged draw or even uh, right. Uh, telling a fighter, yeah, the only way you can win this fight is by knockout. If it goes the distance, you lose. <laughs> right. And the difference between them and the mafia, of course, was the mafia made it a national organization. These yeah. were local guys in different yeah. cities. Yeah. It, it, it's just, it, it, I, I know that Fleischer wrote a book on McGovern. I just, why hasn't there, it's hard to say why there hasn't been a movie. I mean, he had such an incredible life, and he was such a meteor bursting through the sky. I mean, this yeah. was an incredible person. People forget about you. You know what I mean? Even the, the uh, it's, 
I'm not sure a movie about his life, you know, would be commercial. I I could, uh, however, see a, a series on a cable network like they did with Atlantic City and uh, mm -hmm. and so forth. That that to me uh, would work. But but what am I to know? That's not my business. I'm a writer. I'm not a producer. Right. But I mean, there should be because he he deserved to be remembered. And if not for yeah. you, he's not remembered. I mean. As I said, you brought him back and put flesh on the bones on yes, him and, and Dixon. And I, it's, I fell in love with Terry McGovern reading about him in your book. Well, thank you. You know, I mean, he was just, I, I, I wish there was more film and yeah, it breaks my heart that there's not film of him talking. I would have loved to hear how that would be great. Started. You know, that would be great. just such wonderful fighter. Yeah. Where can people get your books? They can get them online at Amazon. Hey, everybody goes to Amazon nowadays, and it makes sense. The publishing house for those two books you're holding up is McFarland. Right. It's a publishing house in North Carolina. They do a lot of baseball books and boxing books. It's a, uh, it's no, it's not one of the major publishing houses, but it's a nice, hardworking, honorable. Uh, publishing house and uh, McFarland. So you can go McFarland.com mm -hmm. or uh, uh, Amazon, which seems to have every book in the universe <laughs> and has killed all those wonderful, nice uh, uh, mom and pop, uh, uh, you know, retail bookstores. <laughs> it breaks my heart because, yes, because one of my favorite things, my daughter still loves this when we go to old bookstores. Secondhand bookstores or mom and pop stores, and there is a giant retailer in Canada that yeah. owns all the bookstores, and it, it, it's a time and place in North America where it was just so much fun to go. Like you you mentioned this in the intro to the book, where you could just go and you could spend a day, you could just relax and look at all these old things, and it was just fantastic. And uh, I I was with you, and occasionally we'd stumble on a little prize. But yeah, when I went to a city, and I appreciate your time today, by the way. But when when I went to a a city on vacation, I would always go to a, a independent brick and mortar bookstore and uh, <laughs> rummage around, and uh, sometimes if find a real cool book, and it made the trip uh, great. But uh, where are those uh, independent brick and brick and mortar bookstores? They're all gone, unfortunately, almost all gone. And it's sad. It's very sad. I, when I went to Halifax when I was doing stand-up comedy in, in the early '80s, I went into a second-hand bookstore. I found the book Ten and Out" by Alexander Johnson from the 1920s. Yeah, three dollars. Yeah. And then I keep looking, and they have the autobiography for two dollars of Ingemar Johansson. I'm not a big fan, but for $2, I'd be an idiot not to buy it. And then in Toronto, there was an old bookstore about the clothes. It'd been around for 80 years. And they had the great fighters of the, of the prize ring written by, by that British fighter. And so it had Frank Craig, who you mentioned in your book, you know, I think the Harlem coffee cooler. And, and it had Dixon, and and George Godfrey and, and, and Peter Marr and I mean had all these great fighters and it was like eight bucks and my daughter said are you gonna buy it and I said yes you know how old <laughs> this is 
I don't think there's a copy yeah. anywhere in the world of this book. <laughs> and I asked, how old is that? And that guy said, well, it was here when my grandfather ran the store 60 years ago. So I said, oh, you know, I'll pay you anything for it. And <laughs> I, I still have it. So, I mean, it's such yeah. a wonderful book. And, well, uh, maybe someday you and I can, uh, I don't know what bookstore it would be, but if they, uh, maybe someday you and I will find ourselves in one of the last remaining uh, brick and mortar independent bookstores and wind up fighting over a copy of a book. But I'll let you out. I'll let you have it. I'll let you have it. Because you were so kind to do this podcast. Well, you've been very kind to do this. I, I just wanted to say, <laughs> with my book, I spoke to Colleen Acock, and she helped me out. And she said, speak to Charlie Perdue, who you know, at, at, at McFarland. So I sent my book. And he said, I love your book. Not love, but I like your book. He said, but it's way too long. So you're going to have to cut 10 to 15 chapters. And he said, the only other thing I would tell you is take out the redundancies. I, I understand that Jack Welch was paid off by Ad Wolgast, but you don't have to mention it 12 times. Oh, well, okay. He's the editor there. so Yeah. And, and everything he said was perfect. So yeah. Yeah, I took it to heart. So just a wonderful person, <laughs> as are you. I want to thank you so, so much uh, for being on the show and for your patience with us. And I want to remind people, uh, you don't have a boxing collection unless you have this book. And this is a wonderful book, Clash of the Little Giants. And it's boxing history. You can't enjoy boxing today unless you know the history of the sport. And no one knows it better and writes about it better than Arnie Lang. And this is the best boxing book ever written. This is the Welsh, Nelson Wolgatt's fight in the San Francisco boxing scene, 1900 to 1914. And when I read this book, I thought, who is Arnie Lang? I have to meet him because I, I, I you know, I, it's fantastic. So please go to Amazon. Please go to McFarland, M small C, F-A-R-L-A-N-D. You can get all right. of Arnie's books. And they're fantastic reads, and they're not only enjoyable, but you'll come out in a great mood because you'll have learned something as well as enjoyed yourself. And I want to thank you, Arnie, for being our guest today on Ring Talk. And I, 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 I look forward, I hope so, in the future that we can meet in person so I can give you a big hug. Thank you, Lou. Let's keep in touch. Yes, absolutely. You be well. Thank you, buddy. Right. Take care. Okay. I think. Okay. So guys, how's that?